Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to another edition of This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at our progressive paper of record. Thank you to the Institute for Cultural Evolution for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome those of you who are viewing live on the post-progressive Facebook group. And as always, this will be posted on the post-progressive post, which is the um, uh, new publication that the Institute is putting out. And there's lots of cool new stuff. And my, my uh, podcast goes up there every week. All right, so today I wanna to take a look at a new book that was released just this last Tuesday, just a couple of days ago, and that has been already and will be no doubt very influential. It's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, written by the anthropologist David Graeber and archeologist David Wengro. And it has already shot to number two in pre-publication. And so it's uh, eagerly awaited and uh, was featured uh, at least a couple times in the New York Times, including an, an article that was titled, What If Everything You Learned About Human History Is Wrong? The Dawn of Everything Aims to Rewrite the Story of Our Shared Past and Future. So, so I wanted to take a look at this book because it presents uh, quite a significant challenge to cultural evolution. And um, so we'll see what we can see here. The book focuses on what is referred to as prehistory, which is the history of humanity before things were written down, generally before agriculture and uh, really came online about nine, 10,000 years ago. And according to the conventional story, for the first 300,000 years or so, and this is the New York Times, for the first 300,000 years or so after Homo sapiens appeared, pretty much nothing happened. People everywhere lived in small egalitarian hunter-gatherer groups until the sudden invention of agriculture around 9,000 years BC gave rise to sedentary societies and states based on inequality, hierarchy, and bureaucracy. But all of this, Graeber and Wengro argue, is wrong. Recent archeological discoveries, they write, show that early humans, far from being automatons, blindly moving in evolutionary lockstep in response to material pressures, self-consciously experimented with, quote, a carnival parade of political forms. And so, yeah, so this is a broadside against the idea of progress or even a linearity to human history. And David Wengro especially is famous as a self-described anarchist economist. And he was part of the Occupy Wall Street and has been a contrarian in that sense for his whole career. And actually uh, he died uh, right after the publication of the book of uh, acute pancreatitis, I guess, suddenly. And so uh, Wengro is on his own here for whatever volumes, that, I think this was gonna be volume one of a series. 
But so David Wengro, the archeologist of the two says, and this is again from the um, New York Times article, there's a whole new picture of the human past and human possibility that seems to be coming into view. And it really doesn't resemble in the slightest these very entrenched stories that have been going around and around. And in particular, and this is the New York Times points this out, this is meant to be a broadside against two of the leading cultural anthropologists on the scene today. One is Yuval Harari with his book, Sapiens, and also Jared Diamond with his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And also, incidentally, it, it includes the big history people, David Christensen and Bill Gates. And uh, I'm not sure they've ever heard of integral theory, but it includes integral theory too. So um, it says here, New York Times says, the big history bestsellers by Harari Diamond and others have their differences, but they rest, Graeber and Wengro argue, on a similar narrative of linear progress or depending on your point of view, decline. So, um, all right. So uh, again, I'm not sure that they take on integral uh, as, as, a, as a, a worldview or school of thought, but there are um, certainly things about integral that are beyond the work of Harari, Jared Diamond and big history. And I've always found all of them to be <sighs> arid, you know, um, lacking in juice and spirit and poetry and, um, and basically the spiritual dimension, the loving intelligence that is behind evolution, that integral for the most part, I mean, there's some people in the integral scene who don't go there, but I do. And, uh, and, and, and my heroes, Ken Wilbur, Steve McIntosh, many of the integral writers, and of course, integral through the, um, uh, the, the history. Steve McIntosh and I did a podcast on the Daily Evolver about the history of integral thought that shows its philosophical roots through a couple centuries. So at any rate, um, integral does not see the the history as what does what's this up here automatons blindly moving in evolutionary lockstep i mean that's a straw man if there ever was one uh, integral actually seeks to integrate the um the 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 wisdom the 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 stuff that we have become blind to in later stages of evolution that prehistoric societies have and um this book is, as far as I can tell, all about what we would call second and third person, political and social structures. In fact, David Graeber, in one of the videos I watched of him, argues that first person consciousness doesn't even exist. Consciousness only happens in dialogue. And um, so anyway, there's a couple things that are going to differentiate integral from the critique they're making. But let's look at the main themes um, just to let them speak in their own voice. This is from, I'm going to play three clips from a video that Graeber and Wengro made uh, over a year ago called The Myth of the Stupid Savage. And this is when they were working on their book. They have, I guess they've been working on it for seven or eight years. 
And here they, they, they make a great deal out of, and the, the various reviews of the book point this out too. They make a, a great deal out of this idea of dual social morphology with extreme seasonal variations. This idea that in prehistory, these tribes and bands and groups of people had, first of all, complex social structures amongst each other. And they would often have a different social morphology. They would get together in different seasons and you know, come together as large clans and groups and what uh, Graeber and Wengrow call states. I'm not so sure they qualify as states, but then they would go back for the rest of the year into their bands and their hunter and gatherers and so forth. So here's David uh, Graeber talking about that. The irony is that rather than living in this sort of naive state of not having figured out complex social arrangements yet, um, people living in these societies with what most called a dual social morphology with season, extreme seasonal variations are actually way more self-conscious about social possibilities than probably anybody living today because you know, they completely shifted social structures every year um, to the extent that in some societies people actually had different names at different times of year. So that's a big statement that... Um... People were way more self-conscious about social possibilities than virtually anyone living today because they completely shifted social structures every year. I mean, when I hear that, I think, really? I mean, how about people who have lived in multiple cultures? How about all of what we can see through the media and travel and education and so forth that... Um, uh, our self-consciousness about social possibilities is off the charts compared to what people in prehistory had. Our ancestors, you know, that's not them, it's us. Uh, so anyway, he goes on and he talks about how the different names for different times of year people would have, um, that they would train, change structures in all kinds of different ways. You might create a little king, then you would go back to your bands. And he talked about how the Eskimos had patriarchal bands. And then once a year, they would have these big bacchanalias with wife swapping and orgies and so forth. And this doesn't, um, I don't, I'm not sure that this is a great surprise. Uh, it's certainly not to me because I read Clan of the Cave Bear. <laughs> and that's what they did in Clan of the Cave Bear. It's actually a fun novel that I did read and love back in the day. So anyway, here's um, uh, another clip from the video where they talk about, you know, just this, this idea of cultural evolutions. Got to go. So by the evolutionary, you know, the sort of classic band, tribe, chiefdom, state hierarchy that archaeologists and mm. some anthropologists still apply, you know, you have a group that's, you know, half the year on the very bottom of the scale and half the year at the very top. All right. So you'd have people who would be, they'd move from band to tribe, chiefdom, state. Half the year they'd be on the bottom, half the year they'd be on the top. Uh, again, that's a loose definition of state if you ask me, but in terms of prehistory in general, I welcome this book and it's, you know, excuse me, it's what, 700 and some pages. So, and, and, and I have no problem 
integrating new findings that I'm sure are being revealed all the time about the uh, ways that people lived in prehistory. And it's far more florid and colorful and flexible than we knew. That is no problem. And in a sense, um, you know, one of the things that we have to realize if we're going to be working with developmental models around culture and spiral dynamics and so forth is that these models do simplify things. Um, maybe they oversimplify things. Maybe they're simplistic in a way. And I'm, I'm happy to open that up and to see the, you know, the these are human beings. We're alive and creative at all stages of development and doing the best that we can with each other, uh, sort of honoring these, these, these two impulses of humanity to both fight and friend our way forward. And that that didn't happen in a certain lockstep. I don't know, they talked about lockstep up here. Um, I don't know who, um, what they say here, automatons blindly moving in evolutionary lockstep. I don't know anybody who thinks like that. Uh, so a bit of a straw man there. Uh, so anyway, let's um, let's keep going here. I'm going to play from uh, the third clip, which is where they talk about this phenomena that is now being seen and revealed more and more, and that is these big burial sites and these monumental um, sort of altars and, and, and funereal rites that were done where there would be all sorts of ornamentation and regalia that as David Wengro said, in any other context would be interpreted as princely or regal. And yet we don't find any of the trappings of a state based on princes. So no, um, uh, um, no armies, no storage, no uh, um, uh, bureaucracy, but yet these big sites, and how could this possibly be explained? And here's uh, David Graeber on that. And for one thing, there is the fact that the vast majority of the skeletons that seem to get the regal treatment are giants or hunchbacks or dwarfs or otherwise physically deformed in some way, which seems to make it rather unlikely that the, you know, we're dealing with some strange deformed aristocracy. Uh, now, if, if he really was a prince in the Machiavellian sense, then presumably he would have got people to do more on his behalf than just make very elaborate headdresses out of small shells. Uh, he would have had them, you know, form yeah. little armies. All right. So this um, reveals another, I think, really significant shortcoming of this book, and uh, or at least their worldview. I haven't read the book yet, and I, I, I have it on order, and we'll see if, uh, how I get through it. But um, that that would be confounding to them that there would be physically deformed hunchbacks and dwarfs and so forth that would be, have princely burials. It reveals basically a uh, limitation of green postmodern thought and or progressive thought. We, we, you know, we want a post-progressive view here. 
but the postmodern progressive worldview is that everything is politics and spirit doesn't really exist. And that's my complaint about, you know, Jared Diamond, about Harari, and about these guys too, is that, you know, how hard is it to imagine that the shamans and the uh, revered people might be physical, uh, defo physically deformed? First of all, they would probably be excluded from the other jobs of hunting and gathering and so forth. And two, a tribe needs somebody who's specializing in observing and thinking about the tribe and working with the spirits and uh, in the spiritual world and being a portal to that for the tribe. And that would be just a natural fit for these people. And again, I read Clan of the Cave Bear. <laughs> And that's what was going on there. The shaman, I forget his name, Mowgli or something, uh, was physically deformed. I think he was a giant, I'm forgetting. But at any rate, um, if you see the world as th only through power dynamics, in this, particularly in second and third person, you know, power over people, um, then, you know, this, this idea that they, they would give these clearly physically non-powerful people the regal treatment is, um, you know, that's all they got. That's the only explanation they got. But integral has more than that. Integral takes magic seriously on its own terms. We think there is a magical dimension to life. We think that we can um, communicate with the natural world, with the animal world, with the spiritual world, that that is all very present. And I don't know how they deal with that in this book, but everything I've seen so far says that they're, you know, pretty blind to it. So that's, a, that's those are a few clips there. I, I wanted to um, also address one of the big themes that they talk about and that the reviewers of the book talk about. And I read reviews from various um, positions. Uh, actually, most of the reviews are coming from the left. The, the, this is a leftist stream, this book, uh, because first of all, it, it, it takes care of the problem that any idea of cultural evolution would mean that the current stage of the culture is the best possible or the, the, the best of any stage previously, the more evolved stage. While that I think is true. It's uh, it's not better in the sense of, you know, is it better to be thirteen than ten years old? Well, not necessarily. Um, there's a certain something lost there, but there's also something gained. And at any rate, growth is not optional for individuals and or for cultures. And so they at some point, and the reviewer, various reviewers point this out, they run into the problem of, okay, prehistory is murky and prehistory, you know, that, that can be a roar shot for, we can see whatever we want to see there because there's not a lot of evidence and not, no written evidence. But then we have agriculture and the world since agriculture is clear, pretty clearly laid out and far less controversial and open to interpretation. And so 
how did we get into agriculture? Which of course is the beginning of, uh, well, it's the fall from paradise in a sense uh, that uh, you know, we leave the natural world and enter the, this human created world with patriarchy and power structures and permanent settlements and all of those social hierarchies and inequalities that plague us to, these day, to this day and presumably didn't plague us in earlier times. I'm not so sure about that, but that's the story. And I think these guys um, are basically on that page. So this is, I remember when I, I did actually a, um, a, a podcast several years ago now with Charles Eisenstein, who I like, you know, he, he, his book was, I think it was just about to come out with the better, the greater world our heart knows is possible or whatever it was. And I remember him talking about how agriculture was a huge mistake <laughs> for humanity. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of get it, you know, in the sense that, yes, we, you know, we, uh, all kinds of horrors of history uh, arose out of it. I'm not sure there weren't horrors before that. But um, it turns out that that's kind of a consensus. These guys think that, and so do Jared Diamond and Harari think that it was a mistake. And I'll, I'll read, this is from a review in um, The Nation by, oh well, it's a review in The Nation, Emmerholt or somebody, but at any rate, he writes about this problem of agriculture. He says, two popular history of everything writers Jared Diamond and Yuval Noah Harari have an answer. The sequence of farming, then private property, war, and states was a trap, they write. Humans entered it without realizing they wouldn't be able to leave. And for most of history, all they found was despotism and disease. The agricultural revolution was thus, quote, the worst mistake in the history of the human race, unquote, as Diamond asserts or quote, history's biggest fraud, unquote, as Harari does. Graeber and Wendrow recoil at this explanation. So do I, but for different reasons. Were our ancestors truly doltish enough to tumble one after another into the same trap? Most important, they're wary of diamonds in Harari's fatalism, of the suggestion that State Street runs only one way. In Graeber and Wengrow's rendition, agriculture was, like everything else, a considered and revocable choice. The dawn of everything thus tells of people, quote, flirting and tinkering with the possibilities of farming, taking it up, putting it down, and thereby not enslaving themselves. And I think that's true. I mean, I have no problem thinking that uh, in prehistory, they tried it, they let it go, they, you know, but eventually agriculture, we, we grew into it because the evolutionary urge to complexity, it seems inevitable that we did and we will grow through it and through into capitalism, which of course is the big bogeyman for Graeber and Wengrow. And <clears throat> we will grow through that but, um, you know, that's the growth view. Anyway, let's see what he says here. So, okay, so this is again, the, the I think Immerholt from The Nation, he writes, 
<clears throat> Yet somewhere, something did go terribly wrong. Graeber and Wengro admit. People went from creatively experimenting with kings and farms to getting stuck with them. That metaphor, being stuck in states rather than evolving to them, is useful in that it suggests that people might get unstuck. Okay. It captures Graeber and Wengro's sense that there is no natural progression from leaderless bands to sophisticated hierarchies. So again, how did the state take over? Asks Immerholt. What's exasperating about the dawn of everything is that it never really answers that question. It's not clear that they want to give an answer. To do so would be to offer a grand historical narrative to explain as Diamond and Harari do in big history and integral, how humanity moved permanently from one thing to another. Yet Graeber and Wengro seem almost allergic to the idea that there's any natural sequence in social arrangements. There's simply no reason, they write, to believe that societies require, require more leadership and bureaucracy as they, as they grow. Um, so, um, <laughs> Yeah, they're allergic to that's uh, again. I, I, I mentioned this. The, Wengro and, and and Graber are uh, developmentally speaking. These guys are green. They would be postmodern progressive, and that stage of development is marked by an allergy to grand historical narratives. Um, I've talked about it many many times. It's uh, Post-World War II, grand historical narratives were completely discredited as they should be, especially the dominator ones. Still, nat still natural hierarchy, but dominator hierarchies had, hierarchies had to go. And, you know, to me, again, growth as the model is just so much more human and potent than, um, you know, even evolution is a dry sort of it a third person or second person it. So this first person is really important. And I can remember, you know, again, the, the fall from paradise is a, is a deep, uh, a story with deep resonance to all humans. And I, I think it goes back to this idea of falling out of nature into the, you know, artifice of agriculture and so forth. And there's, from an integral perspective, we will continue to grow until we can reclaim that. And we're in the process of doing that right now. But in the meantime, it's not pretty and it's not pleasant. And you know, human history is a catastrophe and contingent human currently is a catastrophe. So, I, but I, I can remember, I think of when I first came to Boulder, I went to my first shrink. <laughs> I've always been like a self-improvement junkie. And I went to a psychologist or psych psychiatrist or whatever, and I was telling him that I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I, I'm anxious and I'm stressed and I'm depressed. And I can remember when I was a kid, when I was six years old, just how sparkly the world was and how much fun I had and how I didn't worry. And I went that back. And, <laughs> and I remember this guy, this psycho psychologist, he was older, he looked at me for a minute and he said, so what, you wanna be six years old again? 
And I remember that moment. I mean, it hit me between the eyes. That, 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 that's when I thought, wait a second, I think I got this wrong. I think growth is, you know, uh, you can't go back. But it, in a way, there's that um, exotification, uh, the, the objectification, actually, even, of these earlier stages, romanticizing that, um, you know, again, I think we're going to get there again, but that we had to leave there is not, you know, I mean, I don't think there was any option. So, yeah, an integral respects that. We want to integrate these, the deep community of these earlier stages, tribal, clannish, you know, what of these, you know, seasonal states that arose, the connection to earth, magic as a real thing, this immediacy of touching into life. That's all very much what, you know, we want to reintegrate. And that is part of the integral project. Uh, and then the final uh, paragraph from the interview in the nation that I, I, I like, and, and this is again, the, uh, an example of the postmodern sensibility that is at the heart of this book, screen sensibility. And uh, I I'm gonna call him Immerhalt writes, the effect of the contention that, there, it's not, that evolution is not at play here on Graeber and Wengrow's narrative is profound. Once you've thrown out the notion that there's some law or pattern governing, governing the development of societies, it becomes hard to tell any overarching story. The dawn of everything is thus less a biography of the species than a scrapbook filled with accounts of different societies doing different things. This is very much on purpose. For Graeber and Wengrow, early history doesn't march from A to B, but instead wanders like a Ouija pointer all over the alphabet. Okay, and fair enough. That's a sort of an impressionistic view of history. Uh, it it, it uh, rejects, you know, any any grand narrative, and there is a you know there's a fertileness to that kind of a, a view. And I I I I. I I'm very, uh, I get thrilled actually by a good postmodern aesthetic where it's just this and then there's this and then there's this and there's no patterns. You're just putting it all out there into a big probability cloud. And um, that's, that's, I think, very much where this book is coming from. All right, there's one comment that, uh, there was a, a lot of comments in the comment section in the New York Times, most of which were very skeptical, I have to say, about the book. And, um, and I was glad there were intelligent skepticism about the book. Uh, and then there's this one comment written by this guy, Franz from Brisbane. And I think this guy's gotta be integral. This is just one of the most integral comments I've ever seen. And so I just, uh, I, I pasted it here, I'm gonna, I'll play it or I'll, I'll read it to you. It's about four paragraphs. He writes, the practice of cultural anthropology is to playfully enter a funhouse hall of mirrors. One must constantly ask, what cultural and psychological bias am I expressing with this interpretation or even with this research question? 
this is I think, really important. There is no final answer. There is only the sifting and re-sifting through the maze of mirrors, re-looking at data, re-looking at data points, reinterpreting what we think we know, finding and removing errors of assumption and projection. And those assumptions and errors exist on cultural and individual levels. But that does not mean that some provisional elements of quote truth, average caloric intake derived from a gathering versus hunting culture, likely effect of cultural contact between, between group A and group B in prehistory, likely era of non-stratification versus stratification in, indig in indigenous peoples, that these do not emerge, that these patterns do not emerge and become something between solid postulate and granite fact. So he's saying that these patterns do emerge and, and become something between solid postulate and granite fact. A great joy in life is to constantly examine one's own rigid self-conceptions, conceptions of others, cultural biases, ethnocentric interpretations, and worldview footholds. That these authors choose to do so in a grand synthetic way, even if informed by contemporary cultural and political biases, is part and parcel of a messy but unavoidably human pursuit, telling stories about how we got here and maybe why, and musing on where we are going. So I think that's a great sort of way of holding this book and, um, and appreciating it for what it does, which is, first of all, it fleshes out prehistory. I'm sure it's full of all kinds of great stories and about findings and ideas and so forth. And also that it is, um, that the book is not, it, it's not dystopian, which I, I find Harari to be, I'm depressed. It's first of all, it's it's so shorn of juice and and um, spirit. And Wengro and Graeber here have a more positive view that since we had these uh, societies of, of creativity and you know, non-hierarchy and uh, egalitarianism before, we can do it again because why not? And uh, I, I'll take that part. I, I, I like that part. All right. Well, thank you for listening to me ramble on about that. I, a, a number of you wrote to me about this book, and that's the best take I have right now. And if I get pulled into it and want to comment it further on it further, I will. Uh, so check it out yourself and let me know what you think. Jeff at dailyevolver.com. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of This Week in the New York Times, and we will see you next time, same time, same station.